I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Pongs of the Past edition. It's Wednesday, December 23rd, 2020. On today's show, Let Them All Talk is the latest from director Steven Soderbergh. It stars Meryl Streep as a literary lioness crossing the ocean on the Queen Mary. It's on HBO Max, and it co-stars Diane Weiss, Candace Bergen, and Lucas Hedges. And then it's that time of the year again. It's Slate's TV Club. We discuss the year in the small screen viewing with the fate of the medium in general, as always with Willa Paskin, Slate's uh, wonderful TV critic. And finally, ah, the sweet smell of the winning grant proposal. European researchers are getting paid millions to recreate the smells that have been lost to history. Joining me today is Dan Coyce. Dan, of course, is a Slate uh, writer and podcaster. He's the author of the book, How to Be a Family, The Year I Dragged My Kids Around the World to Find a New Way to Be Together. Dan, I, you found yet another new way to be together with your family, I imagined. The worst one yet. Yes. <laughs> but was it was writing the book in a weird way a kind of, uh, you know, a dry run or a prep for coronavirus? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been remarkable seeing every other parent I know experiencing what we experienced in 2017 when we traveled around the world, except for without any of the fun parts. But yeah, we felt slightly better prepared. Uh, yeah, I mean, a miniature version of that is moving upstate uh, to the Hudson Valley. But uh, exactly. and yes, and uh, of course, Dana Stevens is Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hello, Stevon. All right, Dana. I always expend all my fulsomeness on the guest, and then I turn to you and say, "Hey, Dana." But that just means you're my most beloved child, right? You're the one that I can give the shortest shrift to, and then know your your resiliency will pull through. But anyway, Steve, it's the people you don't have to exchange a word with that you truly love. <laughs> We're cruelest to those we love because we know they'll forgive us. Yes, exactly. A theme of uh, of the first uh, movie that we're going to discuss. But Dana, I do have a question for you. Just how's the movie club going? It's a busy time of year for you, I know. Thank you for asking. Well, actually, the now that the movie club is posting, <laughs> it's not going to be such a busy time of year. But yeah, as as we record, uh, I'm in the midst of the throes of writing it. It's a really fun week of the year, but definitely a, a super busy one. And it's busy in a particular way that, you know, when a movie comes up that I haven't seen, I'm trying to cram it in. So it's been lots of watching and writing, but it's a really good roundup of writers this year. And I hope people will go look at the movie club and maybe we can talk about it on here. Oh, yeah, let's definitely do it as a segment. Uh, cool. All right, shall we dig in, guys? You ready? Ready. Mm-hmm. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In Let Them All Talk, now on HBO Max, Meryl Streep plays the very successful author. She's a like, doyen of American letters, we're told. Alice Hughes, she's taking the ocean liner, the Queen Mary, across the Atlantic to accept a super prestigious literary prize in England. And she brings along with her her nephew, played by Lucas Hedges. He's kind of a companion and low-key amanuensis to her, but also two of her oldest friends. They're played by Diane Wiest and Candace Bergen. Wiest is Susan, an emotionally-centered, self-reflective woman who's found meaning in her life representing the victims of domestic violence. Candace Bergen, meanwhile, is Roberta, who works the lingerie counter in a department store. The heart of the matter, uh, as I take it, is this, that one night decades ago, Roberta, played by Candace Bergen, told the darkest secrets of her life to Alice Streep, the literary lioness in the making at the time. She served up her life 
recent life history innocently to her friend, who then treated them as raw material for the book that made her famous. And Roberta, Candace Bergen, has never fully recovered from this theft. She's asking herself, why have I been invited along now on this cruise? Is it to make amends or is it to be fleeced all over again for the purposes of creating a long-anticipated sequel? Let me set up the clip a little bit. On the um, ocean liner as well is a very famous, best-selling mystery author whose presence they note one night at dinner only to inspire the jealousy of uh, the Meryl Streep character. Okay, so don't look all at the same time, but does anybody know who that guy is sitting behind me to the right? He was surrounded by like a group of fans earlier today. Oh, I think that's him. I know that's him. Who? Who? Calvin Calvin Grant. Who? Who is he? Grant. He's a huge mystery writer. He's written hundreds of books. Have you read any of them? Oh, all of them. All of them. (laughs) Every one of them. Some twice. Good Lord. Wow. How is that possible? How is it possible? No, it's a thriller. He's not like you. He's nothing like you at all. He's a thriller, a mystery writer. A thriller writer. Yes, I, I understand. I, what I don't understand is how people, how you can read the, the, the prose just, that kind of writing seems to me like the, the prose seems like styrofoam or something. I but mean, it's, it's plot driven. Yes, it, but the plots are so simplified. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, you match the color and the shape and then you put it all together. It's all it's very packed, neat and done. And then... It's you know, true. it's a picture that's uh, completely unrelated to life. Life is a mystery, a it's true mystery. True. It's true. It's true. Say. And yet, I can't wait for the next one. Dana, let me start with you. This is directed, as we've said, by Steven Soderbergh. It's semi-scripted by the extraordinary short story writer, fiction writer, Deborah Eisenberg. Uh, I say semi-scripted because apparently she provided a, a general structure, an outline, uh, of the plot arc, and then something like Soderbergh estimates seventy percent of the dialogue was improvised by the uh, actors and actresses. You know, uh, what you make? What did, what did you make of that way of making this movie, and then what it resulted in? Well, I mean, first of all, I love this movie. It's on my ten best for the for the year list for this year, and I think that this process that you're talking about is part of the reason why I loved it. Although I was completely unaware of that while watching it, I try not to read too much before I start watching a movie, so I can just respond to it genuinely. And I did not know about all these uh, constraints that Soderbergh put on the filming, which we'll talk about, or about this scripting process. I knew Deborah Eisenberg had written the script, and that definitely drew me to the movie because she's one of my favorite living writers. I would say I absolutely love Deborah Eisenberg, and the idea of her writing a screenplay, which she has never done before, seemed fascinating. Uh, Also, of course, great cast. But going into this movie, especially given the way it's been marketed by HBO Max, which is releasing it, you think it's going to be more of a a glossy rom-com, right? Because it takes place on the Queen Mary 2, and it was filmed there, and it's got all these kind of lioness actresses of their generation. And so I kind of thought it was going to be this bitchy, snipey, fun on a boat, and did not 
uh, feel prepared at all for what it is, which I think a couple critics have said is is sort of like jazz. It has this kind of asymmetrical energy to it, you know, where you you aren't quite sure where the plot is going to go or where how the relationships will shake down or even what people are going to say from one moment to the next. And it was very interesting to read afterwards that, that that is because they didn't always know what they were going to say. I think Deborah Eisenberg was actually on the boat and was sort of writing scenes in real time as they were improvising. And it seems like it was all part of this the big in group improvisation. Another thing to mention is that it was shot in a very limited time period. So, I mean, as we know from some of Soderbergh's earlier movies, he likes to experiment, right? He likes to try new things all the time. What he tried to do here was to shoot in the length of an actual transatlantic crossing on the Queen Mary 2. So, you know, the extras in the background are just people that were on the boat and they just booked a passage and sort of, you know, ran around the ship shooting when they could. And so I think a few critics, including some we we read in, in preparation for this segment, thought that this showed in the movie's sloppiness, you know, that it didn't feel completely finished. But maybe that's what so fascinated me about it. It's just, it's a movie about friendship that isn't particularly warm. <laughs> the the Meryl Streep character is, she, you're right that she invited two of her oldest friends, but they're actually estranged friends who she's barely talked to in decades for reasons that we learn along the way, some of which you mentioned. And so it ends up being this this movie about friendship that isn't necessarily uh, a feel-good movie. And I won't give away any of the twists, but it also has some very unexpected twists that happen at strange places in the movie. The pacing is very odd. I just couldn't get out of my mind. I've watched it twice in the last week, and I loved it. What yeah, I mean, yeah, Dan, this is definitely not a heartwarming movie about friendship. I mean, it's about a, you know, kind of the theft. I mean, it's about an issue that has obsessed Philip Roth, Janet Malcolm, Graham Greene, like what do you owe to the people in your inner circle when on occasion they're going to serve as raw material for your art? And what kind of a betrayal is that? And where does your ultimate fealty lie, you know, to to the creation of, you know, literary artifacts that may be bequeathed to all of humanity or to this intimate circle of of, of people? Uh, what, what do you make of this? Well, it's true that that's at the heart of what the movie is wrestling with. Um, and one of the movie's best scenes, I think, uh, not to spoil too much, comes near the very, very end when Roberta and Alice finally sort of have it out about what it is Roberta herself wants out of this journey, why she agreed to go on this journey, and the realization that Alice comes to uh a, a very slightly heartbreaking, but a very honest realization about what it is that will actually remedy this situation and um, and the way that the friendship may be beyond repair. And I liked that scene a lot and thought that that was a scene that, that came at this time-honored question about the use of real life and fiction in an interesting way. I don't know that the rest of the movie had that much to say about uh, uh, an issue that, as you note, has been sort of worried over by uh, by fiction writers forever, and um, and in general, the movie's sort of whole relationship to the world of literature is is like very slightly tenuous and weird, considering it's written by an actual literary lion, Deborah Eisenberg, um, and so uh, and so like I was de- both delighted and slightly dismayed at the totally absurd view that this movie has of how publishing actually works to take as an example, a a character that we haven't mentioned yet, uh, Alice's literary agent who, um, who is a, uh, 
a younger agent. She's in her mid thirties, uh, played by, uh, Gemma Chan, um, named Karen. She's just recently become Alice's agent because Alice's longtime agent for years and years and years has retired or as Alice thinks of it has been pushed out of her agency and Karen is taking over the account. They're just sort of starting to get to know each other. And Karen is under, for some reason, a tremendous amount of pressure to determine whether the manuscript that Alice is working on is in fact a, a quasi sequel to her most successful novel, the novel that made her name, the novel that Alice now doesn't particularly like and wishes people wouldn't ask her about all the time. And Karen in a sort of farcical setup sneaks onto the boat uh, without Alice's knowing, buys herself a ticket, um, or I guess her agency buys her a ticket in order to somehow perform reconnaissance upon Alice and learn during the course of the voyage what it is her manuscript is about because her future at the agency for some reason depends on it. All this is completely absurd and like a uh, an obvious thing that you come up with in 10 minutes when you're like, I need a reason for this character to be on this boat. Did you guys think that that played like... I think, I mean, I accepted it as, as a farcical contrivance, essentially. I, I don't think I really questioned. Um, I mean, it obviously is not the way publishing works, but how often do movies get that right? Then again, it is Deborah Eisenberg writing it. So it is odd that there would be such an unrealistic view of what agents do with their time. I mean, they could save so much money by not sending all these people on the cruise in the first place right. that, you know, For they wouldn't real. have to worry about how her book sold. <laughs> what, what about you, Steve? I, I mean, I did think it was pre- preposterous in no small part because it's not an actionable piece of intelligence. I mean, whatever manuscript she's writing is the one that they're going to publish if she's a right. writer. It's of never clear staff, how right? it would help them to know they, whether or not yeah, this thing is what knowing, they want it to be. Knowing makes no difference and sort of inflating the publishing world by making it seem much more big stakes, glam, glam stakes than it actually is. It's just a kind of, you know, it, it's the kind of awkward lie that I think a lot of the target viewers of a movie like this are going to stumble over a little bit. It works thematically, though, in another way, which is that this movie, to me, was the anti-Mank. You know, it's, you know, Mank was a wildly overwritten, preposterously self-conscious inflation of the romantic ideal of the of the writer, the Hollywood screenwriter, as the martyr of the movie business. This, this movie is semi-unwritten, uh, the writer figure in it is depicted as a complete monster. And then as part of that, the literary world is is regarded as a world of self-serving sharks, basically. And so what I, what I loved about that, I mean, I didn't love the movie. I didn't love the improvisatory acting. I didn't know about going in within three minutes. I knew that the actors were improvising most of their lines. Oh, I yeah. found it stilted and in some sense, like kind of wildly underwritten in parts and just awkward, like the cameras on these nice looking obviously very intelligent people who don't precisely know what to say. It didn't seem to me mimetically um, convincing. I mean, the best that can be said for that style is that it begins to feel highly naturalistic and real, like you are a fly on the wall. I didn't feel that way at all. I really felt like I was watching a camera trained on on actors. But what I loved most about the movie it was there's a, there is a kind of deep thoughtfulness to the themes that are in play, which aren't the theme doesn't only cut one way it doesn't cut only in favor of oh my god never betray your friends for the sake of a fucking book that's just egomania a certain like deformity of the creative will to power and a horrible egomania and it's unforgivable like the movie hints at that at the same time it kind of brings it back around and says well 
writers make this tremendous like spirit and blood sacrifice to get those words on the page. It takes that seriously. And in the form of this Dana writer that we never meet, who's been dead for a century, that, that a fictional writer, I mean, it's p- part of only the universe of the movie, that Streep reveres and whose grave she wants to visit on a pilgrimage when she's finally in England. There is this sense that given enough time, all of the kinds of hateful compromises that might have gone into a work do disappear. And what lasts is the work and the miracle of consciousness communicating to consciousness against, you know, I mean, posthumously, I mean, you know, be well beyond the grave. And I, I I liked that it juggled those two things with a degree of grace. But I would complicate the the, the vision that you, you give of her character, Streep's character, the, you know, prestige novelist as a pure monster. I think that the movie is sort of about that struggle about what you mm. what you give up, you know, to become somebody who who writes at the level we're supposed to believe that she does. I do think that we're supposed to believe she's a what at least was a great writer although maybe is is now floundering in a very abstract realm that, that none of her readers are interested in. But we are supposed to take her seriously, I think, as a creator of something that we never hear, right? We never hear her read her prose aloud or anything like that. And we're also supposed to see what that process takes out of her life which is essentially friendship and love right we have no idea whether she's ever been married or had had children we have the sense that she's a very solitary person she tells her friends the day they get on the boat i'm only seeing you at dinner time because i have to work all day and then she actually does and that's something that movies about writers almost never show right Mm -hmm. is the kind of uh the cost what she has to give up and what her friends never get from her, which is, you know, just this sort of time of intimacy and frittering away and having fun on the boat. Like, she doesn't know how to do that. I don't agree that her character's a pure monster at all, although Streep is very funny at showing her incredible egocentricity and her very high opinion of herself. But, for example, somebody we haven't mentioned yet is Lucas Hedges, who plays her nephew, the young 20-something guy who agrees to come along on this crazy cruise with three women in their 70s. Uh, a great character, and his main motivation seems to be essentially that he loves his aunt, right? He reveres his aunt and regards her as this kind of sage, you know, in a way that sometimes seems a little silly, but is also very warm and sweet. And there's some scenes between the two of them, also just both titan actors. I think Lucas Hedges is just incredible. Um, With the scenes where he's sitting with with Streep and they're sort of philosophizing about life or he's confiding his romantic woes to her, I think are some of the best and warmest scenes in the movie. Everything that you guys say is both correct and also makes me imagine how good this movie could have been had someone actually Mm -hmm. written it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is an ode to writers and to uh, the difficulty of finding Le Mot Juste. And yet 70% of this movie we know is mostly made up of actors, not writers failing to find Le Mot Juste in a way that I didn't find uh, at all illuminating to these characters. I mean, there's halting, fumbling speech. There's uh, broad generalizations in place of specific character notes. Um, and most importantly, I think there's scenes that just take twice as long to get where they need to go as they should because characters, because actors trying to find their way toward the objective of the scene are going in the most roundabout way possible because they're trying to do two jobs at once, which is very difficult for actors to do. Dana, you... You mentioned at one point that one thing you enjoyed about the movie was that you you never knew what they were going to say next, and that is true. But I, I don't always actually think that that is uh, that that's good <laughs> in a movie like this. In 
in a movie like this, I want many of the scenes to be pointed and to accomplish exactly what they need to accomplish in as efficient a way as possible instead of as they ended up, which is that in many of these scenes, the only thing I knew is that these actors would say the most boring general thing they could possibly say. Uh, and then they would say another version of the same thing all over again. It, I, I had to laugh about two thirds of the way through the movie when two enormously crucial conversations, conversations that are meant to drive the plot forward in a major way. Uh, apparently the, I have to assume the actual conversations between the actors went so badly that Steven Soderbergh just completely made them silent and covered them up with the jazzy score. Uh, as if the dialogue was not even usable in that scene. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know how to stand up for this movie, except the, the, the spirit of it, that sort of spirit of, you know, improvisation energy and putting a lot of people together and seeing what happened just worked for me, maybe because mm -hmm. I love these actors. I'm not saying that every line they devised was was brilliant, but it is a movie about a writer who is less capable of achieving perfection in language than she wants to be. And that somewhat thematically fits in. I don't know. I, I, I You guys are start making me start to, to question no. my love of this movie now. <laughs> but I will say that a lot of people, including me on in my 10 best list, have, have compared this to other Soderbergh road movies, right? I mean, to something like um, the Magic Mike XXL movie, which is about this kind of oddball group of people trying to make a journey together toward this goal that they can't even decide whether they all want the goal or not right and things sort of falling apart along the way that's a little bit how this journey feels to me but honestly it did occur to me as Dan as you were talking about improvisation that another movie that I remember standing up for in spite of its incredible sloppiness when it came out which is also in part about Meryl Streep on a boat is Mamma Mia <laughs> the musical the ABBA jukebox musical which is in my house it is just canon that Mamma Mia is a great movie we've watched it you know dozens if not hundreds of times around here and I am well aware that Mamma Mia is basically an excuse for a lot of celebrities to go to a Greek island and party and make a movie around it and this boat trip may have been somewhat similar like who could resist the invitation hey come get on a boat with all these great actors and this wonderful writer and director and let's see what we can make I felt the exact same way I was like holy shit sign me up <laughs> Uh, the movie is uh, "Let Them All Talk." It's uh, on HBO Max. I would say, I would say, I, I, watch it. I, it left me on an interesting fence. But anyway, uh, if you do, email us and let us know what you thought. All right, moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on all your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, before we go any further, this is typically where we talk business. Uh, Dana, what do you have? Stephen, our first item of business this week is just to thank everyone, all the listeners who showed up to our virtual live call-in show last week. We were really excited everyone could make it. It was really fun to answer all your questions. There were a lot of great ones, very personal ones. I never thought that I would have to reveal my nickname on air, but Steve forced me to. Uh, if you weren't able to make it to that show live last week, don't worry. It will be released as our podcast episode for next week, a week from today, the last of the year, Wednesday, December 30th. So please tune in for that. The only other bit of business is to mention that our Slate Plus segment this week actually flowed out of our conversation with Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic, about her TV club and her favorite TV shows of the year. It was a really fun conversation, and we had so much to say about one particular question that we are going to segment it off as a separate 
bonus segment for Slate Plus. And that question was something that we've talked about a lot on the show, but Willa really brought something new to it, I think, which is the TVification of movies and the movification of TV and what it means anymore to be consuming any piece of content on any size of screen and whether it's worth differentiating anymore. So that conversation with Willa Paskin will be our bonus segment today. If there is anything you would like us to discuss in a future Slate Plus segment, you can send us an email at culturefest at slate.com. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today and get a free two-week trial if you go to slate.com slash cultureplus. And once again, a Slate Plus membership will get you ad-free podcasts, exclusive plus-only content like our extra segments every week, and many other benefits. You can read all about it at slate.com slash cultureplus. All right. Well, it's that time of year again. We have Willa Paskin joining us to talk about the annual TV club. Willa, welcome back to the podcast. Hi. Hey. Hi. Uh, I delightfully, I get to not write an introduction and just a quote from your wonderful prose. <laughs> so here we go. For the last two decades, we've been living in the slipstream of TV's epiphanic moment when the well-told story goes. TV got ambitious and great, complex and challenging when it transcended entertainment and staked a claim as art. But then, will you say, to state the obvious, this was not a good year. I was a little surprised by that. I don't follow it as closely as you do. But uh, talk about where we are in the peak TV narrative and why this year might have uh, signaled we're on the far side of the slope. I mean, I don't think it's just this year. It's been happening for a little bit. I think... um like, if you look at TV, <laughs> the history of TV, which isn't really that long, there was like a long period where the thing that was true about it was that it didn't have to be very good to, like, be enjoyable or to sate people. I mean, people watched a lot of TV um, when TV was just fine. And I think we're headed back to that moment <laughs> where, mm. you know, people just want to make a ton of content. It's really hard to make a ton, ton of content and have it all be very good. You could have, a, I mean, I think it's surprising that most of it's like pretty good. And that's sort of where we are, like a lot mm -hmm. of pretty good TV. And that's not new to this year, you know? I think um, it's just like there's even more streaming services making like pretty good TV. Right. And there, you know, if there's so much, like, obviously, there will be things that are very good. Um, I mean, that's also the other thing. It's always a kind of misleading. Like, if there's five really great things, you sort of feel like the year's a really good year. And I just don't think there was quite that many even this year. But um, that's that's like a little fluky. You know, it's like a succession aired. Like, maybe it would be like, it was a great year. I don't know. Mm, yeah. So there are like multiple buyers now with almost unlimitedly deep pockets. And they're distributing maybe a, finally at some level limited talent pool between them. Each individual show, you're no longer. I mean, whatever the explanation is, also perhaps Netflix and Amazon, who were the, you know, kind of prestige production houses of this peak boom, just have such a built in, you know, subscription base now. They're no longer fighting for it, maybe as tooth and nail. Anyway, whatever the explanation. Well, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I think the sort of really interesting thing here to me is like, what do people actually want? Like, mm. I just think that, like, the net, it's sort of, one of the things about Netflix that's really interesting, and you see it talked about this way, is, like, people literally talk about it like it's free. Like, like it's a public utility. Like, they don't realize they're paying for it somehow. Like, maybe because they're borrowing their parents or their friend's password. But it's just, like, people treat it sort of like it's, like, network television in that way. And, I mean, that's its whole own insane thing. But this has always been true about TV. It's, like, it puts it in your face just how much most people and most of us just don't need something to be great to be enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening. Like, it's just, this was a year where we're like a ton, a ton of attention was paid to a bunch of like very enjoyable, mediocre shows. Um, 
like a spate of documentaries that were like baggy and saggy and not well thought. I'm thinking of like Tiger King and The Last Dance or like The Vow, you know, where there was like kind of maybe in a sort of, you know, aided by COVID like hothouseness, like we just all wanted to be watching something together. And those things were junky, you know, I mean, they were enjoyable, but they were junky. And I just don't like this idea that people like really, really great stuff. Like, yeah, <laughs> that is not that is not what history shows us about how people consume art or entertainment. Like, that's just that's just not, you know, people don't need great stuff. Great stuff is hard. So and I don't even just mean hard to make. I mean, hard to like process. And and that's like, like, duh, duh. We don't need it to be great. And that's what we're all seeing now. It's fine. All right. So, Willa, I want to ask you about a show that, um, I think isn't exactly great, at least not in the traditional mode of great TV, but which gave me an, an enormous amount of pleasure this year. And I know did you too, which is Ted Lasso. Yeah. Um, a show which couldn't be less like prestige TV <laughs> in that it is adapted from a promotional campaign for NBC sports, as opposed to from a fancy novel or the history of the advertising agencies of the 1960s. Um, What about Ted Lasso made it to you seem like the most 2020 show possible if it did? I mean, it really did. I have a lot of like emo and conflicting feelings about Ted Lasso. So let me just like crack open my (laughs) chest about it, (laughs) which is I think that one of the things about Ted Lasso is it's like a really good example of the conflicting things that I'm talking about that I personally feel conflicted about, which is like I loved Ted Lasso. I enjoyed it so much. I started watching it because people at Slate were watching it and I was like, there's no way I'm going to be into it. And then I watched all of it, which I, you know, didn't have to do. And I cannot tell you how rarely I watch all of a show that I don't have to watch. And I just found it like a balm. It's like a romantic comedy um, about, you know, the nicest man in the world who goes to England and learns how to play, like, you know, learns how to coach a soccer team. And uh, I really just, I delighted. I really loved it. I watched all of it. But it is like so easy, you know? So, so part of me is, it's not even just that I'm saying, like, it's a very well done for what it is. So it's like, again, it's like, well, it's very well done for what it is. And what it does is like make people feel really good about themselves in the world in a moment when we need that. Like, how can you discount that? But it's also like sort of really easy in the sense of like his characterization. He's played by Jason Sudeikis, like kind of doesn't make sense. He's genuinely like the most affable. That person does not exist in real life and could never exist. in. And if he did, he'd just annoy the shit out of you. You know, like it's just not, it's not, there's, it's like a real fantasy and the, the power of that fantasy right now. I mean, I think there's a, I mean, I, I think there's like a cliche about, and I've done this a ton of just being like what this means in this moment. But I think the Ted Lasso in this moment is like the real fantasy of like this benevolent, red state coded American who like believes in, you know, nation building and <laughs> feelings and like talking, you know, he could, he's not, he's like, he's an, he's an alpha who's a beta. Uh, he's like, you know, he's just, he's a wonderful guy. Right. So there's a real, there's a real, and there's like a, the show that's so nice. Like it's, you know, we needed all that. We all needed that. But like, how does that show play in 10 years? Like, how does it play in two years? Like, is it like Parks and Recreation? Is it like Schitt's Creek? Are we more skeptical of those things when we don't need it as much? Like, I I am genuinely, I don't know the answers to those things. And I also just, I do think that there's something about fantasy 
like on that level where it's like, it's almost like a deep fantasy. You know, it's not like even a frothy one that I am suspicious of. Like, it's just making us feel good about something we probably should feel bad about. I mean, we did spend a ton of time feeling bad about it. So maybe, you know, that's what TV's for. Yeah, like 90% of my 2020 <laughs> was spent feeling bad about it. So right. Thank God for Ted Lasso. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Will, at one point you call it aloe vera for my soul, Ted Lasso, which is just such a good phrase. I love it. And that is so much what I, it wasn't that for me this year, but that is so much what we needed TV to be this year that it's it's to me became sort of the, the theme of this TV club in, in a lot of the different posts. I wanted to ask you, since you're talking about fantasy, about something that comes up again and again in, in many people's posts in TV club this year, which is how we talk about TV differently in this in this era of, you know, beyond peak bombardment <laughs> from every possible streaming service and a new one popping up every day. It's it's harder and harder to decide which are the prestige shows that are being talked about. Right. And you talk about about how things have changed since the, let's say, Mad Men or Game of Thrones era where there was this kind of obsessive fan culture that would focus on a certain show. It might not be the most watched show, but it would be the the hottest, buzziest show and it would get recaps and, you know, people diving into every detail of every, I don't know, like piece of armor on Game of Thrones or something. And and that now we have this much more diffuse world where it's very rare for a show to land in this way that everyone's watching and talking about it at once. And one that you mentioned that that did happen with weirdly during this strange pandemic year was The Queen's Gambit, right? Which yeah. it did suddenly seem that everyone was seeing. And like you, even more so than you, because I'm not a TV critic, I almost never finish a show. It was actually a huge relief when you once said that on our podcast, because I thought, <laughs> hey, she's the TV critic and she can't even finish all this stuff. I mean, when you see people on Twitter talking about TV, you think like, do they have some secret time button where they can, you know, like set off some 10 hours of the day that I don't have to watch TV? But even you don't finish things. Anyway, the Queen's Gambit is one of the few things we talked about in the show that I did finish. I mean, it's short, so it wasn't hard to finish. But part of why I wanted to finish it is that I wanted to talk about it. You know, I wanted to argue about it with my family and my daughter, who absolutely loved it more than I did. Um, and, you know, people who sort of hooked into that fantasy part of it and others who, like me, maybe to some degree rejected the wish fulfillment superhero fantasy that was Queen's Gambit. This isn't really a question about Queen's Gambit, although I'd love to hear you talk about that. But it's about that uh, diffuseness of the conversation and what you think the future of that might be. Well, you know, I think Queen's Gambit is really singular because I think like it's definitely the fictional program that we talked about most. And I think as opposed to some of these other shows that it felt like there was a lot of attention to and like that sort of like, you know, that escape velocity feeling where like everyone's talking about it, which was Tiger King. And I think, um, the Last Dance are like the two others I think of, like, and maybe The Vow, but I mean, I'm not even sure that's quite true. Um, it's like better than that, you know. <laughs> like, I think the Queen's Gambit. You know, the truth is that I I enjoy the Queen's Gambit. Um, I watched most of it while waiting online to vote, so I was also like outside. It was a sort of strange way to watch a TV show, but um, I was in a similar to the Ted Lasso way. Like, I think I was a little like I don't know what if there's like a lot of there there, you know, but. It's the conversation about it has been so like protracted and thoughtful that I have been convinced there is a there there, even if um, it's still, I think, in a lot of ways operating in this kind of fantasy realm that I think uh, Ted Lasso is, you know, where it's, there's a lot of reasons that um, we might be very not 
even just now, but always just sort of open to something that seems sort of realist, but is taking place in this fantasy world where there's no misogyny and all men when confronted with a genius woman are like, how can we help you? Um, <laughs> yeah. So- one day all my exes will gather in a room <laughs> to cheer me on. I know it will happen. Yeah. You know, but like we're just reading pieces. We're like, no, that's actually really like a powerful thing to say right now. Or like we need, you know, whatever. I mean, that's a, that's sort of like the cheesiest uh, limbing of what people have said about it uh, is, has made me think like, oh, there's like grist here. And you know what? Even if there's not, like there is the the nice thing that happens when everybody is watching a show is like suddenly grist appears. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. a lot yeah. of people put their mind to something like more and more interesting things will be like, you know, hacked out of it. And I really like, I think that that's like, to me, The Queen's Gambit is almost like a best case scenario of like, a show that's like pretty good that we can all watch together and like see a bunch of different things in and think and, you know, and that talking about makes like richer. Mm. So the show that was most peak TV, like in, you know, it's sort of immediately identifiable as a super serious, you know, flea bag quality, like, you know, extremely sharp writing driven by the charismatic auteur who also stars in it. I mean, it just, it had that familiarity of like just TV at its most, both excellent and dark was I May Destroy You, which was an astonishing piece, I thought, through and through. But it didn't hit the public the way Queen's Gambit and Ted Lasso did these counterfactual universes in which you scratch the most evil person and a quarter of an inch down, they're this decent, empathetic... (laughs) you know, savior yeah. figure. Yeah. But I mean, surprise, surprise. Like, I mean, I think yeah. I may destroy you got like actually a fair bit of attention for given that it's like hard and good and like about something difficult, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I think, I mean, it got, I think it got like, she was on the cover of a lot of magazines. I think, I think it did all right, you know, but it, yes, like that show is actually really good. Right. Like, I just, it's like, I don't want to be reduced to like a know it when you see it, but it's just like, that show yes. is on a different Extraordinary. level to I, me. Exactly. And yet it didn't seem to, yes, it was covered. And yes, everyone and people watched it and were blown away by it. But there was something about like that, that weird feeling of semi-conscious simultaneity by which you know everyone is watching this and having the same experience. That one had about Ted Lasso and, and Queen's Gambit. And I never felt that way about um, I May Destroy You a completely arbitrary distinction having nothing to do with its quality. But that's like, I mean, but that sort of speaks to what I was talking about at the beginning, which is like all these other, you know, older mediums, like even not, you know, they're not all that much older. Like they have a way of talking and thinking about this. You know, it's like no one expects the most popular book in the world to Mm -hmm. be the book we're all taught. Like at, or similarly like with film, like there's a way to talk about popcorn movies and like art house movies or like the ones that sort of can cross over. And like, there's this sort of hangover from the Mad Men Breaking Bad Sopranos moment, which were, by the way, like those shows didn't have huge, I mean, certainly like Mad Men didn't really have a huge audience or anything. Their cultural footprint was much bigger where we sort of think like those should be the same for TV, like succession. Mm. But but like actually the history of TV TV tells us like that's less true than, like that's even less true than in other mediums. And I just think you're starting to see that sort of shake out, which is just like, of course, like what is really, really popular and what is really, really good. Those don't necessarily like, there's no reason those have to overlap. Mm-hmm. Like those don't usually. All right. Well, 
I have this premonition. Dana Stevens is going to ask a huge epochal question. That's E-P-O-C-H-A-L question about movies and, and small screen viewing. And the answer is going to be so full and interesting and contentious that we're going to take that bit and put it in our plus segment. That's crazy. I also thought that. I also had that feeling. <laughs> Didn't you? Yeah. Well, as always, Willa, just a total gas to have you on. Uh, pleasure to have you. Uh, thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, a range of scholars across disciplines have won a, a considerable grant. I think it's been valued at over $3 million for a project called Oderopa, uh, O-D-E-U-R-O-P-A. And uh, the job there is to go through and cull data from paintings and texts from the past in order to try to identify and then eventually possibly even recreate aromas that are no longer extant in the world now. Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, my impression is you pushed for this topic. So it's uh, it's coming yeah, right at I br- you. I brought this topic to the group as as my offering. Well, it's coming uh, right back at you. So go ahead. As and, a guest host. Yeah. Uh, so this, um, this article, it's actually a couple of weeks old, but I discovered it uh, through uh, GabFest superfan and occasional visitor Lauren Collins's wonderful newsletter from Paris. Um, and she linked to it. And I just found this notion gruesomely fascinating. The idea of recreating what surely had to be among the most awful parts about living in the medieval era and somehow bringing them to our contemporary noses. People talk a lot about time travel and, you know, what would you do if you had the ability to travel back in time to the days of yore? And People ignore, I worry sometimes, the the correct answer, which is that if you traveled back to 1800s Europe, you would immediately drop dead from the smell. You would land in London. The assault of, uh, of excrement and horses and unwashed bodies and plague germs, they would all enter your, <laughs> enter your nose and you would just drop dead within seconds. And so I'm so tickled by these researchers who uh, who like the researchers in the first act of a horror movie have decided that what we ought to do is bring the sense of the past back to the present. In act two, the sense invade the present day, taking over our current life. And in act three, all humans lack noses. But what do you guys think about this? Well, Dana? For, uh, we have a title for it, right? It's the miasma. The miasma. Um, Dana, the past stank. Uh, we shouldn't feel <laughs> any kind of longing for the days of you are. That's what I'm picking up here. 
Well, actually, I'm going to quote one of the uh, the people behind this Odoropa initiative to um, to counteract Dan. I think that they, to some degree, the people that want to bring back the smells of the past, want to push back against the idea that all the past did was stink. And so there's a researcher quoted in a Guardian piece on this project that mentions this place called the Jorvik Viking Center in, uh, in York, England, which has al- already engaged with some scent recreation for its museum visitors. And this guy says, where smell does get mentioned in museums, it is often the smells of toilet as Dan just mentioned, or wood burning actually sounds like a nice smell. And he says, we are trying to encourage people to consider both the foul and the fragrant elements of Europe's olfactory past. I mean, I think the, the answer to, to what the past must have smelled like is, is much more mysterious than just like it stank more than it stinks now because there were so many different foods, right? Means of transportation. I mean, yeah, you're right. All those means of transportation shit on the road. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think this is a great project. I think they deserve their $3.3 million. I am somewhat confused (laughs) as to how they're going to diffuse this information to the public, right? I mean, what we really need are those things. aerosols, I assume. Right. What you need are those things that you get at a perfume test encounter in a department store, those little tabs of white paper, you know, that they spray with perfume. But it seems like this project is going to be online, which is going to be nothing but words describing smells, right? I mean, this is like the problem of smell-o-vision, you know, that kind of attempt to to, um, create the sense of, of odor in movie theaters. I think there was one of the short-lived, um, you know, gimmicks of the of the 1950s. There's not really a way to share smells without being physically present to some sort of molecules that are actually going up into your nose. So all of this is going to end up probably mainly in abstraction. Although I suppose when you were touring a museum, there could be sort of miasmas released into the air or something <laughs> oh like God. that. The miasma I've, museum, please no. I've never heard a more ingenuous statement by a scientist than, oh, we don't think that the smells were all bad. We want to bring the good ones back too. <laughs> Buddy, you don't know. You weren't there. It smelled horrible. And now you're trying to bring it to my modern delicate nose. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, somewhere in here I read that Napoleon used eau de cologne to mask the evil stench of battle. Uh, this strikes me as the use of data to mask the goofy smell of bullshit. I mean, <laughs> it's just an amazing waste of public money if you ask me. I, I mean, the idea that you're going to sift through, I'm looking at the New York Times article now. So $3.3 million for Oderopa. I mean, the name alone tells you they're off to a... They spent $500,000 on banning just the <laughs> focus grouping that name. Uh, so they're going to use artificial intelligence, which is where I would typically stop reading if it weren't uh, on Slate's dime. Uh, that I was reading in the first place, but to sift through more than a quarter of a million images and thousands of texts, uh, medical textbooks, novel magazines, I think they're also using paintings, and then machine learning and artificial intelligence, and these are infallible. I don't know if you know this, but they're infallible. We'll train computers to analyze the references and then uh, to smells and then somehow recreate them. I Whatever, it's like, it's tobacco, it's incense. Like, you know, you could probably just read some text somewhere about what went into the incense candle you know, have it made either synthetically or, 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 or you know, according to, a, you know, the old organic specs and then light it and then smell it. Like, just as soon as you dignify a research grant with the words machine learning and artificial intelligence, the money comes flowing your way. I just find it. And you also be- 100% guarantee that not only will your research be potentially pointless, it'll be definitely racist. <laughs> oh, yeah. And reported credulously in the mass media. <laughs> I, I don't know. God, where do we take this topic? What do you I think? would like to encourage the researchers behind Oderopa, <laughs> if you're listening, to please 
uh, email us, come on the show and defend yourself against me and Steve. Uh, (laughs) I want you to tell us why you are not sentencing modern humanity to a horrible excrement scented death (laughs) simply by reintroducing these smells to the world. The marasma. All right, for the second time in one episode, the Steven Soderbergh movie, and now this, I feel like I'm I'm flailing to say why I think something is fine or even good that you you both um, want to rip into bits. Not that you really did it to Steven Soderbergh; you were you were more than kind. But I just want to throw you a subjective question about smell. Can you think of any smells from the past that you would want? to know about. We've talked before about, you know, what era you might want to travel to, or last week we talked with Nicole Perkins about what work of art you would have liked to have witnessed in its own time. Um, Tell me about a smell from the past that you would like to experience. I would like to smell a piece of meat that a person in the Middle Ages regarded as still quite delectable and a treat to eat, but that to my (laughs) modern nose smells like like olfactory four death. days past its prime yes <laughs> like r- like rotted carcass it smelled like carcass i would like to smell the sweet perfume of uh you know marie antoinette Careful, that is Dan. <laughs> covering the fact that she has not been able to bathe for two weeks yeah and so underlying her sweet perfume is the stench of death <laughs> <laughs> so two stenches so of fact, death. In fact, you guys are pro miasma. It's all coming out now. <laughs> Listen, the one thing I could say unequivocally in, on behalf of this project is that we do have preposterously sanitized and indeed perfumed notions of what the past was actually like. When by our standard, by our standards, they were an absolute sens- sensory nightmare, and we would not want to exist in them. Um, you know, uh, and it, to the extent that this reminds us of that and cures us of that nostalgia is probably a good thing. All right, the project is called Odoropa. I'd love, I'd love if someone even remotely connected to it or something like it would would uh, email us and excoriate us for our, our insensitivity to the uh, utility of the, of such a project. But um, anyway, we'll link on online to the various articles written about it. But we'd love to hear from you as always. Okay, moving on. Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show, from real-life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat, Come to Life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. I'm LeVar Burton, and if you're ready to escape into another world for a little bit, check out my podcast, LeVar Burton Reads. I read my favorite stories aloud every week by everyone from Stephen King to N.K. Jemison to Toni Morrison. Plus, we add a little sound design and music to make it a truly immersive experience. Listen to LeVar Burton Reads wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, now is the moment in the podcast when we endorse Dana. Dana. <laughs> I think sometimes, sometimes you're joking and sometimes you're having a seizure, and I'm not sure which it is, so I just wait it out.
always they're always if one you the hear same. the telltale thump of your body hitting the floor <laughs> it's a joke all right uh what do you have well, I have two short endorsements, and they're related to each other. One is to flag the fact that by the end of the year, by the time this podcast goes up, I will have compiled the Winter Walk playlist that we uh, sourced from all of you guys a few weeks ago on the show when I asked, what is the mopey winter equivalent of the summer strut? Can we get a playlist of not necessarily sad, but contemplative walking music? And a bunch of people sent in great suggestions. I'm a very slow compiler on Spotify, but I'm putting it all together into a list. Some people sent more than one title. I didn't always incorporate everything that people sent, um, but I'm going to make a, a sampling of it and make that available on Spotify. And it should be up by December 30th when our live show airs as our podcast. Uh, but at the moment, it's still being compiled. So since I want you to have something to listen to in the meantime, I'm going to endorse this week a different Spotify playlist, a holiday playlist that was compiled by Mark Morris, the great choreographer uh, who runs a dance mm. company here in Brooklyn. I think I've talked before about Mark Morris and how much I love him as a choreographer and just as a as a figure around Brooklyn. He's just he's a he's a he's a wonderful guy. And he's one thing he's done since the pandemic started is a few times he's done a sort of Zoom interview music show with the music director of his dance company where they talk about some of his favorite pieces of music and play them. This is related to that. He has compiled a holiday playlist. And because Mark Boris has incredible eclectic taste, it contains everything from Barbara Streisand and Aretha Franklin, sort of holiday classics to Baroque music and Schoenberg. I'm looking at it right now. You know, some English carols, just Oh Little Town of Bethlehem. I mean, just it's a mixture of sort of, you know, arrange, great arrangements of familiar carols and more under the radar things. And like everything Mark Morris does, it's worth looking at. So Mark Morris's music for the holidays, Spotify playlist, we'll link to that on our show page. Oh, that sounds really marvelous. Dan, what do you have? My endorsement is inspired by the most absurd scene in Let Them All Talk, the moment when I was the most unwilling to suspend my disbelief uh, just the very idea that Diane Weist and Candace Bergen would sit on the Queen Mary and have a heartfelt conversation about their past while playing a game of Clue. Clue, a game that no one plays unless they are playing with a 12-year-old. And it's not even a two-player game to, to start with. Anyways, the movie lost me there. In response to that on-screen violence done to board games, I'm suggesting and endorsing an actual two-person game that these characters might have played and enjoyed while having that heartfelt conversation about their past. It's called Patchwork. Uh, it is a delightful game only for two players in which the players are competing to make out of little sort of various Tetris-shaped game pieces a beautiful and elegant quilt on their own 9 by 9 grid. And the person who makes the most complete and lovely quilt in competition with the other person wins the game. Uh, it's a great game for two people of all ages. A 10-year-old could play it. A 90-year-old could play it. Um, and uh, they would probably be very competitive and have a great time together. And I love it. And it's a great game, a great gift, and something that uh, these characters probably would have enjoyed a lot more than Clue. Mm. Uh, all right. Well, this week I'm going to endorse a couple different things. Uh, the first is that um, I, I endorsed uh, Red Garland, jazz pianist, a year or so ago, more. And the endorsement was basically this was Red Garland was just the trustiest, maybe maybe with the possible exception of Bill Evans, the jazz pianist whose, whose body of work was just totally trustworthy, that you just go on Spotify, you put on a Red Garland album, and his playing is assured, elegant, 
has a lovely understated panache and you can just throw it on in the background at any dinner party and it just won't go wrong. And um, Julia Turner picked up on that and, and, and was went all in on Red Garland. And I think he was in her top three or five of uh, most listened to in 2020. And the truth is, you know, Garland is great, and I stick by that endorsement, but it's finite. I mean, you know, it's an exhaustible resource. And so I started looking around for more, and of course, of course, I already worshipped Bud Powell, the great uh, bop pianist, you know, up there with Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker as one of the great geniuses of bebop. Uh, and he did it on the piano, which in some ways you could argue is not a natural bebop instrument, but he made, there, there is a Bud Powell album called, um, it's called Bud Powell's Moods, which is just it has that that deep moodiness that I think is not is more characteristic of of cool jazz or earlier jazz, but sort of got got glossed over a little bit in the in the pop era. I mean, maybe my music history is wrong here, but it's just a beautiful, evocative record, and it it goes out as a a especially heart, uh, heartfelt endorsement to Julia. I hope she listens to it. It's really great. And then I just want to add very quickly, Dan, because you're here, I'm going to reendorse. Wolf Hall, I finally, <laughs> I finally got my ass of the chair, and it's taken me nine months to read half of it. But that's only because I, I you have to. It's slow food, man. You cannot hurry this. You can linger over every every sentence. It's so delectable. There's no hurrying it. Also, find it hard to follow. I mean, there are a lot of characters. Her language is is. Is flawless, is so beautiful. There's, this is not a cut against, not ripping on our language. The use of language is, is perfect. You wouldn't want it any other way, but you have to pay attention, you know, close attention, or you're going to get lost. But um, I I couldn't love it, and it does remind me of of your you know, total veneration for what she accomplished. Chewiest book in years. You can just chew on it forever, and it never stops tasting great. Never. And also, I'll. I'll Put it aside for a week, and I'll go back, and I'll suddenly discover, oh my god, I've, I've just reread twenty eight pages, <laughs> and I'm like, I just does, I don't care. I'm so immersed in it, so totally immersed in it. It just, it just doesn't matter. I mean, I clearly, I don't want it to ever end. That's a great anyway. endorsement because it both will inspire many people to read it and convince other people. Oh yes, I never would want to read that under any circumstances. <laughs> oh, no, they're totally wrong. That is a particular I, quality in a book that I love, actually, when you can sort of forget where you were and then reread a big chunk of it, but it's such dense prose that you kind of forgot that you already read it. That happened to me with Moby Dick over and over again. I just kept slipping yeah. back and then kind of clawing my way back to the same place again. <laughs> Zeno's paradox novels, they call them. Yes. Uh, anyway, so uh, thanks, Dan, for that and your appearance on the show. My pleasure. And uh, Dana, as always, just a total, total pledge. As ever, sir. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We love it. We we threw a lot of half-baked controversial opinions at you this week. Come uh, knock them down. Interact with us on Twitter. Our feed is at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Dan Coyce and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon. Hold up. 